Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national reporter for the Republic. Today, we're covering something that's on every parent's mind, reopening our public schools. And the CDC pushing for an in-person education, a release of new education guidelines, paves a path for bringing students back to the classroom by layering health measures. We'll also take a look at a proposal to expand school vouchers in Arizona. We'll break down the proposal, what it means for parents, and why it's being debated now. First, let's take a look at where in-person education stands in Arizona. Joining us for that discussion is K-12 reporter Lily Altavena. Thanks for joining us, Lily. Thanks for having me. Hi, guys. So give us a sense of what some of the things are that are determining whether or not schools will reopen permanently for in-person learning. Yeah, in Arizona, especially, things are really piecemeal. So it depends, you know, school by school on what's going on. You have a lot of schools in the suburbs, in the East Valley that are open, and you have a lot of schools sort of in the urban core of Phoenix that are not open. And some of that is based on parent preference. Schools have, you know, given survey after survey of do you want school to reopen in person? And you know, parents in those urban core areas are more hesitant, probably because they've been hit by COVID harder. Um, You know, on a national sense, the CDC is now recommending some sort of metrics similar to what we saw here in Arizona at the beginning of the school year uh, surrounding community spread. But I think opponents of that data are saying, actually, you know, that's not a really good way to measure whether it's safe or not to reopen schools. So you have a lot of different things going on, like what's happening on the national stage and then district by district and charter school by charter school. So do we know how many teachers have been vaccinated to this point? And give us a sense of what steps the state has taken to get teachers vaccinated. Yeah, we don't know uh, sort of the quantity of teachers who have been vaccinated. I've asked ADHS multiple times and they've kind of said it's really hard to to know how many people in that population have been vaccinated because there are so many different ways. But, you know, take Mesa Public Schools, the biggest school district in the state. Um, You know, that district did sort of a pod based situation. It surveyed its teachers um, and it made sure that anybody who wanted a vaccination could get one. Um, So at this point, the vaccine is pretty readily available to teachers. Some have had a hard time getting on, especially in Pima County. Um, But, you know, especially in big districts, which have had sort of their own pods, they've had the opportunity. The Arizona Education Association is the union that represents teachers here in Arizona. What's their stance on reopening schools and how have they worked with or fought with legislators and superintendents on this issue? Right. So like a lot of the teachers unions um, across the country, they have been hesitant about reopening schools quickly. Um, You know, I've had many conversations with the president of the AEA, Joe Thomas, who has said, you know, yes, of course, we want schools open. But there are certain safety measures like ventilation improvements, um, making sure that every teacher has had their second dose. 
that they want implemented before. And so we haven't necessarily seen this happen on a legislature standpoint. It seems like legislators are are sort of okay with letting each individual school district decide. Um, and, and we've also seen it calm down sort of on the governor's front. But I think really we're seeing these battles play out district by district where some, you know, districts have said we're going to open uh, and, you know, their teachers have said, no, please don't do that. So give us a sense on that uh, district by district uh, battle. How many schools have reopened for in-person learning? And is that reopening full time? Is it hybrid? How is How does this all look at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think in Arizona, it, we've really hit a point where the majority of districts are open. Um, you know, Mesa Public Schools is open. Uh, parents have the choice of keeping their kids home in a lot of schools. And then again, when you get sort of into the urban core, uh, there are fewer districts like Alhambra Elementary School District um, and Phoenix Union High School District that have stayed closed. Um and there are some districts that have said, you know what, we we probably will stay closed through the end of the school year, which um, I think is an overwhelming thought for a lot of parents who have now had their kids home for a year and are seeing, you know, some of the effects of the closures, which are are dire and, and scary to see as a parent. So a lot of us have had an up close view of what that impact on students and their parents um, has been throughout this pandemic. What sort of things are you hearing from parents and families about the effects of all of this on students? I mean, we always hear, oh, kids are resilient. They're going to make it through. But what are you, what are the long-term sort of effects and even the short-term effects of this? Yeah, resilience is a funny thing because it, it it really depends on the kid. It depends on their environment. It depends on you know how many resource how many resources they have access to in their community. Um, you know, so kids who don't have a strong support system to begin with, um, or in a tough situation, or even experiencing intermittent homelessness, they're going to have a lot harder time you know dealing with being you know so isolated. And so, in some kids, we've seen depression. We've seen isolation. Uh, You know, I just saw a thread the other day of a parent saying that their kid is, you know, just in their bedroom all the time, not getting out and moving a lot. Um, And and a lot of anxiety. You know, I, I know a young girl who has had a really hard time since her grandma died during all of this, who, you know, is is more anxious than she was nine months ago. And, and and I think that's hard to see for parents. And getting those mental health supports and interventions is really important. The other side of that coin, though, is that it's really hard to get mental health intervention or know when a kid needs it when they're learning from home. So what advice are experts offering to parents and to students who have made the decision or, you know, um, because the numbers are in a, in a place where the schools can physically reopen or they're sending their kids back to school, what advice can you give them about how to handle that transition back to physical in-person learning? Yeah. What I've heard from the experts is really, um, an emphasis on communication. So making, 
you know, your home a safe place to go back and forth with kids and and say, you know, hey, how are you feeling today? Being able to uh, really tell day by day how they're doing and and figuring things out. I think, you know, it will just take time, uh, especially when a lot of schools went back in person in September. What I was hearing from parents is that, you know, at first their kids were really scared because of the virus and, you know, they, they would see their classmates being pulled out for quarantine and that's scary. So I think you have to manage your child's expectations and make sure they know what they're going into when they go back into a classroom. Um, and that, you know, they know what mental health supports are around them. They know that a counselor is a safe person to go to. One of the other consequences of all of this has obviously been loss of learning and um, kids not meeting certain benchmarks read in reading and math and some of these other areas. What steps has the government taken to, to sort of address um, this anticipation that kids are not going to be where they need to be, especially the young ones? Yeah, we're seeing some, um, we're seeing some proposals on the table for the state budget to send, you know, about 400 million to uh, schools for things like summer school, learning interventions, specifically targeted at kids who are in low income schools, uh, or, you know, schools that are just not doing well on the state test, which kids will take for the first time since 2019. um, In uh, April, starting in April, going till May. So Schools are starting to get data of, you know, how many kids are getting F letter grades? How are they doing on district benchmark assessments from a state perspective? We will get test grades uh, from the AZM2 test, which is that's the name of the AZ merit test. It's changed a little bit. Uh, And that's how we'll know how students are doing on a state level. And that will be really helpful, again, to know where to, to send resources but it sounds like there's going to be an increase in summer school, an increase in, you know, reading intervention, math intervention. Those are the areas of concern. And then for the older kids, you know, how do you get them back on track to be ready for college? Because really, once you hit your junior year, that's that's the important thing. And I think a lot more kids are, are hesitant about college or can't afford it anymore because of the pandemic. So, Lily, is there anything else our listeners should know about where reopening in-person stands at this point? You know, I think what's important is that we are hearing a lot of national conversations about reopening. And on a state level, we we stand in a different place because we have a lot more districts and charter schools that are already open. Um, so in, in that way, we're kind of an experiment. But what I have heard a lot less uh, about is you know, a a ton of COVID cases in the schools that are opening. I've been monitoring the dashboards. Uh, I've been looking at the data and, you know, the case counts while community spread is still out there and it's still pretty prevalent. Case counts are in schools have have remained relatively low depending on the school, you know, and in some schools, the case counts have been larger. So it's important to look at the mitigation measures your school is taking, look at the science and and really do, you know, what feels best for you because only you are going to know what's best for your family. Well, I know what's best for my family. And that is, I will not utter the phrase summer school anytime soon. However, we probably will need it. So Lily, <laughs> thank you so much as always for your answers. We really appreciate your time. 
And sadly, listeners, Lily is heading to the Detroit Free Press soon. Lily, we wish you well. For those who want to continue covering or continue following your coverage, where can they find you on Twitter? Thanks, all. I'm going to miss the Arizona Republic, too. And Arizona students and parents, you can continue to follow me at Lily Alta, L-I-L-Y-A-L-T-A. The debate over reopening in-person learning during a pandemic has implications for parents and students alike. And Arizona Republicans have a prescription that could long outlive the lockdown. State Senator Paul Boyer has proposed SB 1452. That's a bill aimed at expanding the state's voucher program. And it comes two years after 65% of voters rejected voucher expansion. Certain Republicans in Arizona are really trying to sort of leverage this moment of uncertainty with physical in-person learning by this proposal. The Republic's Rob O'Dell is joining us now to talk about SB 1452. Rob, what exactly does the bill propose and why do you think it's being proposed at this moment? Well, thanks, Yvonne. Um, What it proposes is a massive expansion of uh, of the R voucher system. Um, we've had one for a number of years. It started off in 2011 with disabled children. They've expanded it since. Um, uh, several years ago, they passed a, a universal expansion that would allow any child to uh, to to use a voucher. Um, and these vouchers uh, take the money that would have went to the pu- to public schools and uh, allow put it on a debit card and allow parents to go to private schools. So that measure, uh, a group called Save Our Schools got that measure on the ballot and voters resoundingly rejected it. Um, Republicans come back every year with a voucher bill. But the, the thing that's different about this one is this one is huge. This one is it, it may even be bigger than the um, than the expansion that voters voted down. Um, so this would allow probably 60 to 70 percent of Arizona students to use a voucher system um, to, to go to private school. And, um, you know, it's, it's being sort of cloaked in this idea that it's for low income children. But it doesn't just say low income children. It doesn't just say if you have if you like get low income services, it says if you go to a school that accepts low income uh, services. And that essentially is a allows a free-for-all and is allowing, would allow 60 to 70% of public school students to attend. And there's a lot of people who, who think that it's being brought now um, to sort of exploit the, uh, the frustration that people have right now with education, um, you know, to use the pandemic to move something forward that has always been one of their priorities. So let's take this in steps, Rob. What do proponents of the bill say about its benefits and why are they proposing it now? The kids are falling behind, which is which is undeniably true. Right. Uh, 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 Children everywhere are falling behind. And it's, of course, is worse for children who have less uh, resources. So kids in low income schools are falling more behind than kids in in schools that perform well. so what what they say is yeah let's let's uh, you know this is tailored just to um, low income students but in reality it's not and you know they they talked a lot in the discussion about the these kids are trapped in failing schools well 
kids who are in failing DNF schools can already use the voucher program. The, the big problem, the rub with it is, is the voucher program gives you for, in a lot of cases, not all, but in a lot of cases, it gives you about half the money to go to private school. Well, the other, poor children don't have that other half. And so, you know, critics obviously say this is just a way to get more middle and high and higher income parents to uh, to use these vouchers. And then right now it's being proposed because, I mean, really, because they can, um, they have majorities in both houses. Um, and, you know, there's there's a, a lot of concern over kids falling behind for the pandemic. So it's it's sort of natural that, you know, they would try to use that to 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 push this through. But th this is something that they've been wanting to do always, basically. What are the people who are standing against this bill, the Save Our Schools Arizona, some of these other um, teachers and parent groups, what are they saying about um, the big reasons to be against this bill? Um, I mean, the main reasons are, you know, what they've said from the beginning, which is that this is an attempt to, one, defund uh, public education. It's an attempt to get back at um, uh, teachers and parents for Red for Ed and the teacher raises and Prop 208, and that this is this has always been their plan to to uh, pump as much money out of the public school system into the private school system, um, and so basically the kids who are left in the public school system would have very little funding, and the the funding could then um, you know they use this term follow the child instead of go to the instead of go to the school or the school district. So, so basically the money would go to the child and the child could get a, could get a private school education. But obviously, you know, the rub in that is that not everyone can afford that, um, you know, to, to not everyone can afford the, the, the part that's not covered by the state uh, money. One of the trends that our previous reporting found was that families from wealthier school districts tended to be using this program, which was intended for lower income at risk kids um, to, you know, help pay for their private school tuition, which at times can be as much as $15,000 a year. Do you have a sense as to whether or not that's, that trend is still prevalent among uh, folks who are using this program? Yeah, um, we've repeatedly found that um, uh, kids leave wealthier and better performing schools, despite it being like uh, promoted as helping low-income students. And despite low-income students having much having a much better chance, you know, a much larger opportunity to go because if you attend a DNF school, you can go for any reason. If you attend a, a higher performing school, there's only five reasons you could go. Um, so even though lower income kids have a much, have a much larger chance of being able to go, they go at much lower rates than, um, than people leaving high, high performing uh, wealthier school districts. And that's basically what people believe is that, you know, if you're going to go to a school that's $15,000 a year and you get, you know, roughly the ESA will be about six or seven, you know, it, it'll be in different cases. But for a lot of, you know, sort of kids who aren't disabled, it'd be about six to $7,000. You're going to make up the other part of it. And, you know, it's, it obviously stands to reason that if you are struggling or you're low income, you're not going to be able to make up $9,000 um, to, to, to be able to go to private school. Okay, so the state Senate narrowly passed this bill on a party line vote on February 15th. 
It now is in the state's House of Representatives. Rob, what's the likelihood that the bill's going to pass there? And will Governor Ducey sign it if it lands on his desk? Well, I mean, the one thing we know for sure, absolutely, is if it lands on the governor's desk, it's going to get signed. I mean, that you can take that to the bank. And I, I, I would... I have no idea what they're going to do. And I don't think anyone can judge because we've rarely ever seen this situation. Um, Mainly reconsideration is like, I screwed up something procedurally. So, you know, we have to send it back and just do this small, like a little amendment. This is, has a lot of politics and a lot of anger on, honestly, built into it. And on top of that, it's a proposal that Republicans really want, Um, especially Republicans in the Senate who just moved it to, to go to the house. So, um, there is that wrinkle thrown in there too, but assuming they get that worked out, and I think they will, um, uh, I, I don't like I said I don't know exactly how, but I I, I imagine the bill is going to get considered in the House at some point. There's the 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 um, the you know uh, sorry I got mixed up. Um, you know the likelihood that it passes in the House is lower than it, than it was in the Senate. In the Senate, basically, you knew it was going to pass because Boyer's the moderate, Boyer ran the bill. In the House, there's about four different people who will, who will decide the fate of the bill. So a lot of scorekeeping, a lot of grudge settling, a lot of carrots, a lot of sticks to try to move this bill. Um, and I know you'll be following it um, closely. I guess my final thought on this is how would this even be legal given Proposition 305? I mean, voters have already said, look, Governor Jack Ducey and Republicans at the state house, you passed this program, you expanded it. We don't like it. We took it to voters in 2018. They rejected this proposal. Now you're bringing it back again in some form or fashion. How is this legal? How does it not run afoul of what voters have already decided? Um, it, how is it legal? Uh, I think that's still a question to be determined. Um, I, uh, you know, if you read the, if you read, you know, our, our um, voter protected initiative law, you know, uh, law um, that voters, that voters approved just precisely for this reason, um, it, it includes referendums. But the problem, the problem is ref, the referendum side of this has never been tested in courts. So, it, I mean, it's going to end up in court or it's going to end up with a, um, another ballot measure to settle it. Um, we we kind of know that um, Save Our Schools is, has said that. So you're either going to have you're either going to have it immediate. You're either going to have them sue if it's passed and it gets settled in court or they might do two things sue and then also run another initiative and then the initiative would make it very clear what happens because we've already sort of settled the initiative part of this in the courts but the referendum we haven't and so you know it's it's like we're just going to be continuing this fight if we're here in five years we're going to be covering a fight over vouchers certainly illustrates the stakes um that are at hand with this issue it is a big issue that has major implications for parents and schools And um, we appreciate your coverage and we appreciate that you joined us as always to come onto the gaggle to answer some of these questions. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be wanting to follow your coverage on this. Where can our listeners find you on Twitter? Uh, Thanks you guys so much for having me Uh, on Twitter. You can find me at Rob Odell AZ. 
Okay, listeners, let's dive into some afterthoughts. Yvonne, you and Rob wrote award-winning stories about this voucher program years ago. Arizona voters rejected the expansion that was on the table at that time. Now Republicans are proposing an even bigger expansion than that one. It seems like the GOP is really counting on voters to either change their minds or just not care. Should Republicans expect pushback from voters on this or are they properly seizing this moment? So it seems to me that the battle lines have really already been set on this issue. And if anything, they have hardened. The people who oppose expansion of this empowerment scholarship account system have only had greater influence over the last couple of years. We've seen them wade into a number of other issues and they've received most recently the support of a lot of business leaders and groups that are echoing their sentiments that this is a program, if expanded, that would benefit the wealthy and the people who can already afford to send their kids to private school over the people who really need the extra help. On the other hand, you have a lot of parents who are frustrated, whose lives have clearly been thrown into, you know, tumult over the last year who might be looking for other options, particularly if they are ready to send their kids back and their public schools are not. So here's what to look for, I think, over the next couple of months. What did our COVID numbers look like? How many teachers are refusing to go to work? What sort of actions are we going to see by the teachers union in terms of refusing or encouraging their members to not go back to work for safety reasons? And what does the parent revolt sort of look like? And if this thing sort of stretches into um, next year and we don't see any sort of action um, on this particular bill, I would definitely expect this thing to come back. The governor will be entering his final year. As we've talked about in previous Gaggle episodes, he needs some legacy items and school choice. And this voucher program expansion is something that he wants. Ron, we're already seeing national Republicans lambast Democrats for a lot of these schools not reopening. We're seeing them attack Joe Biden. We see them going after, you know, people like Senator um, Mark Kelly, um, who's up for reelection in 2022. How do we see this debate sort of playing out in the long term heading into the 2022 cycle? Yeah, so this is a moment that has been really uh, a period of great frustration for Republicans all over the country with, as the party sort of tries to sort out what its identity will be moving forward and how they plan to resist the Biden agenda and the Democrats more broadly. And I think that to a lot of them, it feels like they've found a, a real winner here, that the public support for returning to schools, this need economically to get people back to work, that sort of thing is something that they see as an opportunity for them to present an agenda that has both public support and also is in line with their own party views on these issues. So I think that you can expect a lot of Republican unity on this across the country. And it is kind of odd that it would come on public education, for example. This is not really an especially intensive federal issue uh, in Washington. They provide a lot of money 
But for the most part, local education is controlled at the state and local levels. So with that, though, the the state, uh, the national GOP and, and a lot of folks on Capitol Hill really see an opportunity to take Democrats to task. Well, that is it for today, Gaggle listeners. Audio in today's episode comes from ABC 15 Arizona. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Maritza Dominguez and Katie O'Connell with help from Amanda Liberto. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.